Thank you for being here tonight. On this Wednesday, we are continuing our um, series on the I Am Statements of Jesus. This week, we are going to talk about Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Next week, we are going to tackle Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And then we are going to wrap up the series with his statement that he is the true vine uh, here in just a couple of weeks. And so... Um, Tonight, as we, uh, as we jump in and discuss Jesus as the resurrection, um, we are going to um, jump into a situation where Jesus has just lost um, a very close friend in his life, a man by the name of, Mazareth, of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And what's interesting is that Jesus has a close friend named Lazarus, but this whole scenario is kind of documented by Jesus' closest friend, which is John. And so we get this really unique perspective, a lot of intimate details, um, a lot of intimate conversations that happen, and uh, very excited uh, to share it with you tonight. We're going to be in John chapter 11. If you have your notes, we're there. We're not going to read through the whole notes, but let me just say this. I'll go ahead and prepare you. Last week, we talked about shepherding, and we talked about Jesus as the good shepherd and shepherds at a, like a pastoral level, and I told you that good shepherds uh, offer nutrition to their flock, and I just want you to know tonight that we are going to read so much scripture that you are going to have to like walk out the door sideways because you're going to be so stuffed with scripture tonight, okay? Uh, it is a little more than normal, okay? Um, but excited to share this with you. Let's pick up in John 11, starting at verse 1. The scripture says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now this is the same Martha and Mary and Lazarus who in John chapter 12, just a few days later, Jesus is going to be at their home and Lazarus is going to be reclining at the table. Martha is going to be busy making meals and cleaning and Mary is going to be at the feet of Jesus and she is going to be doing this historic moment of worship where she breaks the perfume and anoints him. This is the same uh, trio family here. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. So the disciples were saying, Jesus, if the man is asleep, that means his body, he is going to recover from this illness. But Jesus had spoken of Lazarus's death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go with Jesus that we may die with him. Now, before we go on in the narrative, it's important to understand that this story, this series of events that's going on in John chapter 11, um, it is encapsulated in a greater narrative going on. There is a, uh, there is a plot, there is, um, there is a group of religious leaders that are seeking to kill Jesus. In John chapter 10, we talked last week about Jesus coming in, he heals the blind man, and then not only does he heal the blind man on the Sabbath, which broke the religious leader's laws, but Jesus also claimed divinity. He claimed oneness with him and God the Father. And so they sought to stone him. Jesus escaped and went to where he was in this portion. Thomas looks and says, we're going back that direction? Are you crazy? And Jesus says, listen, we're going to help Lazarus. But Thomas says, he says that we may be going to help Lazarus, but we're probably going to die in the process. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and go on. Now, when Jesus came to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Mary said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the son, you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary and saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to Jesus. Now he had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary had gone out to meet him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same thing that Martha had just said. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping also, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. And one of the most powerful profound verses in all of scripture, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the tomb. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? So she took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, Lord, as we open these scriptures tonight, I really pray that you'll help me to be concise. I pray, Lord, that you will help us all to understand the nature of resurrection and life, eternal life. And I pray, Father, tonight that as much as anything, that the hope that some of us may have that may be dormant or covered up by, you know, just life situations or whatever, that you will resurrect that hope inside of all of us tonight for eternal life that's to come. And we thank you for it. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, if you know anything about different cultures throughout the history of mankind, you know that in every culture, there is some level of the fear of death. You realize that, that throughout all of human history, in every culture regardless, there is some level of the human experience where we, we fear death on some level, right? And it's, it's not just reserved for the human experience, but we also see this in the animal kingdom. You see animals, you know, when, when the predator comes, what do the prey do? They run, right? Because there's this instinct, there's this, this fear of death. And it transcends culture, it transcends time. But at the same time, what we find is that throughout the vast majority of cultures, also throughout history, is not only is there this incredible fear of death, but in most cultures, there is also equally some type of hope for life after death. 
Does that make sense? And so there is this, there is this tug of war that happens in most human cultures where there is a fear of death, but there's also this hope that there's something beyond just this life. And when I cross the threshold of death, that there is, there is a new life. Um, there are those like uh, the Hindu religion, uh, different religions like that, that embrace the idea of reincarnation which basically just means that uh, they believe that when a human dies physically, that their spirit leaves their body, but then is reborn in another body of a person or a thing or, or whatever. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Um, in Christianity and Judaism, uh, Islam, we all believe that there is some type of paradise that awaits those who believe. Um, in a sense, we believe that there is this ideal perfect utopian heaven that awaits us uh, when we cross the threshold of death. Uh, as a matter of fact, all three of those religions, not only do we believe that, that there is life after death, but we also believe that there is death after death. We believe in a very literal hell that exists um, for those who do not believe. Uh, there are spinoffs of the Christian faith that, that just believe crazy things, okay? Uh, a lot of different things. There, there was one I was reading that uh, basically believed that when the believer dies, that God will then give them a planet of humans for themselves so that they can kind of be demigods over, over that planet. And so they believe that once they cross this, they're, they're going to become gods. And even, even people in, in modern day who would consider themselves atheists or they would be people who um, suggest that science you know, rules and reigns over all, um, those who are honest, and you can, you can listen to these people, even the, the most famous ones who give lectures and write books, and the ones who were incredibly honest, there is a level of concern for what happens after this life. Like there is an element where they're not sure if they're right. They, they are open to the possibility that they could be wrong. Um, I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we, we served at a church in Panama City, as most of you know, and um, we had this uh, guy who had served with us for years. I mean, he he followed Jesus so faithfully. He was incredibly devout, uh, went through a really rough season in his early 20s. And uh, I didn't see him for a couple of years. And one day he called me kind of out of the blue and asked me to, to travel to, to have lunch with him. And I, I traveled a couple hours away and we sat down for a meal. And in the midst of that meal, he began to explain to me the process, the journey that he had been on that had taken him to the place where he, at that point, had renounced Christ and the Christian faith. And um, it was an incredibly vulnerable, very emotional, as you can imagine, conversation. Both of us sat at the table and we wept over this thing. And um, we just talked for hours about what was going on. And... I'll never forget one thing that he said to me, though, near the end of the conversation. He said, I, I do believe this. I, I reject Christ. I reject the Christian faith. However, he said, there are still some nights where it's difficult for me to fall asleep because I wonder if I'm wrong and there really is a hell that awaits for me. And so regardless of the culture, even, even you know, people who claim to be atheists or, or not believe that there is a God, there is usually some level of healthy fear that exists. This, and all of this, all of it does is it confirms what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, right? He says that God has planted eternity in every human heart. He says that God has planted this desire, this longing for something more, this idea that there has to be something more beyond this life for it to exist. Uh, R.C. Sproul said this, he said, life is so precious that there beats within every human heart a hope that there will be victory over the grave. So every person, regardless of culture, there is this hope inside where they say, I hope that death is not final. I hope there's not a finality to death that things do not continue on. But then oftentimes they go off into all these different things. But for the Christian believer, our hope is simply this, that there is a resurrection of the physical body that rejoins the spirit, and there is an eternity that awaits us in a very real place called heaven. 
We believe it's not a myth. We do not uh, believe that this is just, you know, fairy tales that we have made up to uh, console our souls that are, that are longing for something. We believe the truth of the scriptures in this. So as we jump back into this, these events that are unfolding, um, we have a situation where we have this family, right? We have Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And again, this is the same ones that, that Jesus would be at their house just a couple of days later. But what we find out about this, this trio of a family is that Jesus has some type of a special bond with this family, right? Um, he spends a lot of time at their home. Um, he allows the woman, Mary, to sit at his feet and to wash his feet and to, you know, uh, for a woman in that culture that, that just would not have been well accepted by, by many people, this is the man that when the sisters sent a letter to Jesus, they said, the one whom you love, right? And so we've got John in the same way, who is the one, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. And so what we find from the language is that Jesus, though he loves everyone, and I believe God loves everyone equally, that oftentimes there is a closer relationship with some than with others. And oftentimes, like in modern times, that is fully dependent on our decision and what we'll do with, with Jesus and, and our pursuit of him. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us, he says, if you will draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Right, And so we have this situation where Jesus is, is, has some type of a special bond with this family. And what we believe is that it's, it's probably because these people are not just kind of fringe followers, right? They're not just kind of fans of Jesus and they hang out on the outskirts to see what miracle he's going to do next. But what it appears from all the information we have about these three is that they are, is that they are fully devoted followers of Christ, right? They are all in, they're pursuing, it's beyond lip service. It is a wholehearted relational commitment. The brother of this trio, Lazarus, has fallen sick. Now, we don't know if it was you know, cancer or pneumonia or coronavirus. We don't know what it was, okay? But what we find is that Lazarus has taken sickness into his body, okay? Jesus, at this moment, um, while these people are in Bethany, that's where they reside in Bethany, which is just a, a short distance from Jerusalem. They are living in Bethany, and Jesus is in a town that's about 20 miles away. And what we see unfold in the events is we see a four-day span, like from the beginning of John 11 to the end of John 11, there is a series of four days that unfold. And I want to kind of spell them out to you just for context so we can kind of get our minds around everything that's going on. Day number one, what apparently has happened is that Lazarus has fallen so ill that he is literally on his deathbed. His sisters believe that he is about to die. And so on day one, what they do is they send a messenger 20 miles away to where Jesus is. And they send a message, and the message is simply this, Lord, the one whom you love has fallen ill. And what that message indicated was, Lord, Lazarus is about to die. We need you. And so on the first day, they send it, the message. Now, what we can gather when we put all the pieces of, of John 11 together is, is simply this. It's apparent that in the morning, the sisters sent the message. They sent the messenger off, and he would have to travel all day, and he would have to huff it to get to Jesus on that same day. He arrives to Jesus and delivers the message on day one. But by the time the message gets to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead. And according to Jewish custom, he was not only already dead, but they would have taken his body immediately and taken it to the grave, right? So this is why Jesus says, our friend Lazarus is dead. On the first day, the message goes, but by the time the message gets there, it's, it's understood that Lazarus already died. He has been married. On the second and third day, Jesus does something peculiar. If you remember in the scripture, it's a very odd saying. It says, when Jesus found out that his friend was sick, because he loved him, he decided to wait. It is the, the strangest, like, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he allowing all this to happen? And we're going to unpack that here in a minute. 
But on day four, ultimately what happens is that Jesus and the disciples, they decide that they are going to make the trek all the way to Bethany. They go to Bethany, they arrive, and then the events unfold, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The question is, why would Jesus wait four days after the death of Lazarus to go and be with him? And I believe it's very important that that we understand this, but I think there's two very important reasons why Jesus waited. Number one is simply this. I believe that Jesus wanted to observe the proper cultural mourning rituals of of the Jewish culture. He wanted to observe the culture. So this is what would happen in in, um, in Old Testament Judaism. This would, um, when a person would die, a relative would die, basically there was a 30-day mourning process. And so if I had a sister who died, I would take 30 days to, to mourn the loss of my sister. If I had a parent die, it would be 12 months of mourning. But in the midst of of me losing a person in that 30-day span of time that the Jews called for mourning, the first three days were incredibly tense moments of mourning. This is when, you know, when, when the news was discovered that someone would, would rent their clothes or they would put, you know, sackcloth and ashes on their head. Um, many people would hire professional mourners and they would come to the home of the deceased and they would, they would wail and they would, they would weep and they would draw attention to everybody in the village and other villages that someone has, has, has died and it was a way of showing honor and respect to the deceased and to the family. But those first three days were really reserved primarily for the professional mourners and they were reserved for the most immediate family. So in other words, relatives, people in the village that were, that were not immediate relatives, even friends that were close with the family, those first three days, due to custom, they would kind of stay back and let the family have their time of mourning. But beginning on day four, the Jewish people would open their homes to extended relatives, to people who were not blood-related to them, to others in the village, and they would be allowed to bring food and meals and and gifts and condolences to these people. So I believe that Jesus wanted to respect the family. He wanted to allow them to have their individual personal mourning, and then according to custom, on the fourth day, Jesus would show up and do his thing. The second reason, I believe, is that I believe Jesus wanted to make sure That this miracle, perhaps arguably the most incredible miracle he did while he was on earth, I think that Jesus wanted to make sure that it was unquestionable what he had just done. See, there were many rabbis that taught that when a person died, the spirit of that person would leave the body, but it would kind of hover in that geographical region. And sometimes it would come back and visit the body, not, not in the body, but it would kind of visit the body and, and kind of come and go. And they taught that the spirit of a person would do this in case God wanted to raise them back from the dead. But what's understood is that when the body began to decay, when rigor mortis began to sit in, when, when as Martha said, the odor of the dead body began to to seep through that the spirit would permanently depart. I think that Jesus wanted to wait until the body began to decay so that he could come and there would be no question if Lazarus was in a coma or maybe he was just taking a nap or he had gotten a fever and he was out of it. Jesus wanted everyone to know that this is a dead man. His body has begun to decay. He smells, but I am going to bring resurrection power and I'm going to raise this man from the dead. And so we have this this whole type of narrative going on. And as we're going through this, I think it, it's important for us, not, we're going to focus primarily on resurrection uh, here in a moment, but I think it's hard for us to get a resurrection without talking about death, yeah. right? And sometimes, oftentimes, there are some things that are uncovered when, when we know people that experience death. When we have loved ones or friends, there are things that, that happen to us in the moment. There, there are times that are very confusing, very, very frustrating. Um, I remember I was in, um, in Panama City again. My wife and I, the first couple of years, we were in our early 20s, and um, there was, um, I remember being woken up one morning, 
It was probably 5.30 in the morning, and it was a shrieking of a woman's voice. And she was screaming, and she was calling for help. And um, I, I remember waking up, and I was just so disoriented and so startled. Um, all, I, all I remember is it was, it was a female screaming, so I, I kind of looked out the window to see if I could see anything. I couldn't see anything. I went to go run out the door to see. I didn't know if the woman was being raped or attacked, or I didn't know what was going on. And so I went to go run out the door, and, and in the moment, I was so confused. I wasn't wearing, you know, I was wearing bed clothes, so I had to, like, go back in and get more clothes on, and I, I ran outside. I didn't know which direction to look. I finally see the woman. She's over there in an, in an adjacent apartment, and I walk over there, and she's standing outside of her, her doorstep, and she is, she's clawing at me, help, help, my husband, help my husband. And I look in through the door, and, and I, see, I see the body of her dead husband in, in a recliner right there. And I'm not trying to be insensitive or anything like that, but she was, she was clawing me like, CPR, you know, do something to help my husband. And by this time, the man, I mean, he had, he had obviously died overnight. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't going to try to give CPR. I didn't even know how to do CPR. And so I, I just said, no, ma'am, I, let, me, let me call somebody. And so I stepped outside. I was just so disoriented. I think I actually called a friend that I worked with because his wife was a nurse. And I was like, what do I do? And he was like, call 911, you know, and <laughs> I just felt so just blah, like I didn't understand what was going on. And if you've ever experienced the death of someone you love, especially if it was an unexpected death, oftentimes there can be tremendous confusion and chaos, and you're just trying to get your mind around what's going on, and there can be all kind of confusion. But I also think not only in the natural realm can there be confusion, but I think a lot of times we can misunderstand what God is doing in the midst of the death of a loved one, right? This is exactly what we see unfolding all throughout this narrative. We see people misunderstanding what Jesus is doing. We see them misunderstanding what God is really saying and the activity and why is he doing this and why is he not doing that? We see it over and over again. For instance, um, we see the disciples, uh, they think that Jesus is talking about Lazarus as, as being asleep, as, as taking rest. But Jesus is saying that Lazarus is dead. It's the first misunderstanding in the narrative. And simply put, they misunderstood what God was trying to say. Uh, Thomas does the same thing. He thinks that Jesus is talking about going back to Judea. And, you know, in Thomas's mind, he says, well, we're going to die, boys. But in Jesus's mind, Jesus is going to help them experience something very different than death. He's trying to take them to experience a miraculous moment, but they misunderstood what was going on in the moment. They misunderstood the, the whole point of what Jesus was trying to say. Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about the principle of resurrection. You remember she says, Lord, I know I'm going to see Lazarus on the last day. I know I'm going to see him again on the last day of, of resurrection. I know that. But Jesus is saying, Martha, you're misunderstanding I'm not talking about the principle of resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the light. In other words, there is no resurrection without me, right? I, I am not a resurrection. I am the resurrection. But Martha just could not get her mind around what God was doing in the moment. Mary and Martha think that Jesus is arriving late. Both of them say the same thing. They say, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But in reality, Jesus is on the perfect timetable of God Almighty. But they did not understand it. The Jews near the end, the Jews think that Jesus should have done the minimum right? Uh, we see the Jews here and they say, the man, he healed a blind man. Couldn't he have at least stopped this man's death? He could have prevented the death of Lazarus if he can heal the blind. They, they were thinking in their mind, that's, that's the least that he can do. But in reality, Jesus was not just about to do the minimum, he was about to do the maximum, yeah. right? He was about to do something grander than anybody could comprehend, but they misunderstood the moment. The Jews at the very end, we did not read through this, but it's in your notes. The Jews 
Once Jesus heals Lazarus and Lazarus raised from the dead, the Jewish leaders come together and they say, we cannot allow this man to do this. If he continues and people begin to believe, Rome is going to come in and crush us and crush our nation and crush our religion. And the high priest Caiaphas says it gives a prophetic word, even John at the very end, you can read it later. But the scripture says that, that unknown, unbeknownst to him, that Caiaphas, because he was high priest that year, he made a prophetic declaration when he said this. He said, it is better for one man to die for a nation for the betterment of all the people. And John even writes in his gospel, he says, Caiaphas didn't even realize what he was saying in the moment. There was a tremendous misunderstanding. And so my point is, is simply this is that not only can there be like mass confusion in a moment when we experience death, but we can oftentimes misunderstand what God is doing in the moment of death, right? There, there, there are very valid, very piercing questions that many, many people have to deal with questions of, you know, why did, why did my grandmother suffer or why did this person die so young or why didn't the Lord raise them up? Why didn't the Lord heal them in the moment? And all of these are incredibly valid questions. But my point is simply this. If we're going to be a people who understand what God is doing in the moment, we have to understand what God is doing in the moment. We have to be a people who are anchored in Scripture and understand elements about life and about death and about resurrection. Because ultimately, this is where Jesus is, is pulling us to. Okay, are you following me? Am I good? Am I confused? Okay, so Jesus is wanting to make sure that people are understanding what's going on in the moment of death. But the second thing that I think death often reveals is our hurt and our humanity, right? So we see Mary and Martha are both hurting deeply. There's a lot of confusion, but there's, there's a lot of hurt deeply. There's something that should be noted that I think, it, again, this is John, the closest person to Christ, and he is giving intimate details of the moment. And if you notice, Mary's tears are recorded in Scripture. They're recorded in the writing. But what's left out are Martha's tears. And the point is simply this. I think, and, and even it may have been unbeknownst to John, but I think a clear message from Scripture is simply this, that people mourn differently. People mourn differently. This was not indicating that Mary was super soft and, and weak and hypersensitive, but it also wasn't saying that Martha was cold-hearted and didn't have any feelings or empathetic. It's just basically helping us understand that people mourn differently. And the reality is, is that they were mourning the loss of their brother, but they were also hurting in a different way because they did not understand what was going on. Again, twice they say, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. In essence, what they're saying without asking a question is they're saying, Lord, why weren't you here? Lord, I saw Jairus' daughter and you healed her from a distance. You didn't even see the girl. You saw her father as a representative and you healed her with your very words. We know that you know, proximity is nothing for you. Why didn't you just say the word from 20 miles away? Why didn't you just prevent Lazarus from dying in this moment? And my point is simply this, is that the ladies are hurting and their hurt is valid, but they did not understand that just like Jesus told the disciples, he said, it is good for you and it is for the glory of God that I'm doing this. But they would soon come to find these things out. So it's not just the hurting of Martha and Mary, but it's also the hurting of Jesus himself. Again, one of the most profound sentences in all of Scripture were simply this, that Jesus wept. And I've read, you know, studies of commentators and scholars, and, you know, they're, they're just dissecting the Scripture to oblivion until it basically doesn't exist anymore. And I was reading one commentary, and they said, um, they were saying, well, Jesus may have been weeping because Lazarus died, but he was also weeping, and they would give this list of all these reasons, the, you know, the indifference of the Jewish people, and you know, the, the onlookers wouldn't make a decision for Christ, and you know, they, he was upset with the callousness of the Jews and all these kind of things. 
And all those things may be true. But when you look at what the scripture says, it says Jesus wept and then immediately the people looked and they said, see how much Jesus loved him. And that was the cause for his weeping. And so not only in the moment is is Jesus hurting, but Jesus is revealing his humanity to to us. He is showing us that he identifies with us as as humans. And and I'll say this, in in like the first couple of centuries of the church, uh, most people never had a problem believing in the divinity of Jesus. Everybody believed, if, if you were a follower, you believed that Jesus was God. But what so many struggled with for hundreds of years was believing that God was also human. It wasn't, see today people wrestle, they say that Jesus was a great teacher, he was a great human, he was a great moral leader, but they don't believe that he was God. Well, back in the day, they believed that he was God, but they struggled to believe that he was human, that he could identify with us. But Romans tells us, listen, Jesus identifies with your temptations. He came to earth to understand. In this moment, we understand that Jesus identifies with our hurt and our humanity. It's the most human statement that we see in all of scripture that Jesus wept. In the first couple of centuries, if you, um, if you uh, notice, you may or may not like art and all this, but um, I want to show you a photo real quick. But... In the, uh, in the first couple of centuries, if you look at paintings that were created um, that show the, the, the Christ child with Mary, like baby Jesus as an infant, um, what you would see oftentimes, almost every time, is a rendition of Mary holding Jesus, but as she's holding Jesus, she is nursing Jesus. He is, he's there at her breast and he's nursing. This is one rendition. I saw others, but I just got to be honest, there, there are many, many paintings that are very detailed of this, okay? And so this was the most modest and appropriate. Um, but, but my point is simply this, is that for hundreds of years, and you can look, there are dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of renditions of the Christ child with his mother Mary written where Christ is nursing at her breast. And it wasn't to reveal his divinity, It was to reveal his humanity. The creeds, the early church creeds, many of them were written to affirm the divinity of Christ, but they were also written to affirm the humanity of Christ because he wanted us to understand. This is is why John writes all this, is because he wants us to understand that though Christ is completely divine, that Christ is also completely human. The prophet Isaiah would say that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and he would be acquainted with grief. And so I think when we experience death, oftentimes what what happens is is how we interpret things is often skewed, but I also think it reveals our hurt and our humanity, which is okay, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It should expose those things. But I think the most important thing that when we encounter death, what it exposes is it exposes what our truest level of hope is beyond this life. So there are people that when they are facing death, they have tremendous faith. I mean, they, they, are not, they do not fear death. They, they are anchored in Christ. They are looking forward to the other side. Martha was one of these people. As her brother had just died, she had tremendous resolve. And she said, Lord, I know where Lazarus is. I just didn't want him to go there that quickly. I know that there's going to be a resurrection, but I want my brother back. And Jesus narrows the focus by saying this. He says, Martha, I know you believe in a resurrection. And again, but I am the resurrection. I am the embodiment of what resurrection is. There is no uh, the resurrection without me as resurrection. And this is what Christ does. In some way, he says, Martha, not only will there be a resurrection, I am the resurrection, and I'm about to give you a sampling of what resurrection looks like when I raise your brother from the grave. Where is he buried? And so... I think as we dive in 
really quickly for a couple of moments into the idea and the concept of what resurrection is. I think definitions are very important. And I think it's important for us uh, to all remember that there is a difference between someone who is raised from the dead and someone who is resurrected, okay? Throughout scripture, you'll, you'll see people who were raised from the dead. You'll see the, um, the widow's son at Nain. You, you'll see different ones who were raised from the dead. Lazarus was not resurrected, he was raised from the dead. And the difference is this, a person who is raised from the dead will face death again. So Lazarus died, he was raised from the dead, but guess what? Lazarus got to die again, right? So, so a person who is raised from the dead will face death twice, but a person who is resurrected will not face death anymore. So Jesus, he was not raised from the dead. He was resurrected with power. He is not going back in the grave. He, it, it was a finality in his resurrection. And so when we start to look back at, at the, the concept of, of resurrection, uh, Daniel was one of the first prophetic voices to speak to it. In Daniel 12, I think it's in your notes, this is what the prophet wrote. He said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so the idea of resurrection was, was always within the Jewish culture. There was one branch of, of Jews who did not believe in the resurrection. It was the Sadducees. And as the old preacher would say, that is why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. But every other sect of Jewish religion believed that there was some type of resurrection but the question is not what they believed about the resurrection. What did Jesus believe about the resurrection, right? And so there are three different types of resurrections that I want to just quickly, quickly address. I had my friends bring this incredible whiteboard so I could do some fancy artwork for you. Um, but a visual representation is just going to be simpler, more simple than me explaining it. So Let's just say that, um, let's say that this is a timeline of human existence and, for that matter, all of eternity, okay? Uh, this is creation. Um, let's see, Jesus, let's say that Jesus was right here and Jesus was buried and then he was resurrected, okay? This is what we call the resurrection of first fruits, Okay? Jesus, Paul would say that, that Christ is the first fruits of resurrection, okay? There are some scholars that, that say, and I, I kind of contend with it a little bit, and I'm not sure where, how I feel about it, but there are some that say, remember in the book of Matthew where uh, the Bible says when Christ broke forth from the grave in resurrection, that there were um, saints of old all throughout Jerusalem, hundreds of them that broke out of their graves and they went about telling all that Christ had done. Some people believe that not only was Christ resurrected, but right after Christ was resurrected, that these, these saints were also resurrected. I'm not exactly sure of that. I think they may have just simply been raised from the dead and had to return to the grave at a certain point. Okay? Doesn't matter. So there is a first fruits resurrection right here. Now, later down the road, you were born, right? And at some point, can you read that? You probably can't read that. Okay, at some point you and I will die and our bodies will go into the grave. When our bodies go into the grave, our spirits will ascend to the heavens. This is why Paul said to be absent from the body, in other words, from the, for the spirit to be absent from the body uh, is to be present with the Lord. And so he's saying that your body is gonna be absent in the dust of the earth, but your spirit is going to be raised in heaven. Now, what we believe beyond this is that there is coming a certain point in human history that we call the rapture, okay? Basically, um, we get this theology from uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and the book of Revelation, but basically we believe that there is going to be a moment called the rapture of the church where the people of God are, uh, so what Paul says, he says, um, there will be a trumpet sound and those who are dead in Christ, in other words, those people whose bodies are in the ground, they will burst forth from the ground and those who are alive, us, and remain, those dead bodies and us will be raptured and we will meet the Lord in the air. 
What happens in this moment is that there is a second resurrection. It's called the resurrection of the righteous. We believe this happens at the, at the rapture of the church when the dead bodies go to meet the spirits and they are rejoined together. And at that moment, what we believe is that they are then glorified. Um, we are then given a new body and we fully step into this moment of eternity. We also believe that in this moment at the rapture of the church, there is this period of time that we call the seven years of tribulation. And we all, you know, as kids, were terrified of this, okay? Um, some of us as adults. Um, so we believe that the rapture of the church is going to somewhat initiate this period of time called the seven years of tribulation. After the tribulation, the scripture says that those who were martyred in the tribulation will then be resurrected and forevermore be with the Lord. Okay, so we believe that there is a first fruits resurrection, which was Jesus, and Jesus, his resurrection made it possible for the rest of us to be resurrected. Praise God for that. So there is a first fruits resurrection, then there is a resurrection of the righteous, then there is a second resurrection of the righteous, and then following the tribulation, there is this period of time that we call the thousand year reign of Christ. There is peace on earth. Christ has fully and physically established his kingdom on earth. He will rule in tremendous peace. And at the end of these thousand years, this is not to scale, by the way. Okay, this thousand years is, okay. At the end of these thousand years, what we understand is that at that moment, there is going to be an event that happens that is what we call the resurrection of the wicked. And in this moment, the resurrection of the wicked, it will be those who did not put their faith in Christ. They will be called to account at this place that we call the great white throne judgment of God, where they will be tried for their lack of faith in Christ. And then beyond that, they will be judged and then we will ascend into eternity. And so there, there, in other words, there are three different levels of resurrection that Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's a first fruits resurrection, there's a resurrection of the righteous, there is a second resurrection of the righteous, and then finally there is a resurrection of the wicked, but the resurrection of the wicked does not lead to life, it leads to the second death. And so as we begin to read through and, and, and look through all these things, Sometimes, you know, there, there are theologians, and let me just say this, I'm pretty sure this is pretty accurate, but there are a million theologians that would disagree with this timetable, okay? And that's okay. But the Assemblies of God basically believes that, that this is what we're looking at, and I affirm almost 100% of what we're looking at here, okay? But as we look at this, there have always been people who were skeptical of the resurrection, Right? It wasn't just that Jesus did things or miracles or teaching or anything. People have always been skeptical of the resurrection. I was reading about um, early Christians and, and some people they contended with at different points. There was a man, he was an early thinker. His name was Celsus. And he was an anti-Christian thinker. In other words, he was just trying to dismantle Christianity every step that he could get. And this is what he said in one of his writings. He said, and the doctrine of the final resurrection itself is the high point of Christian nonsense. What will happen to those whose bodies were destroyed by fire or eaten by beasts or eaten by fish? Will God scout the world after bits and pieces of each body? To which I would reply, yep, that's exactly what he's going to do. And it's going to be incredibly glorious when he does it. And so when Jesus is saying here that he is the resurrection and the life, he's basically saying this. He's saying, Un until I am resurrected, in other words, none of this can happen until this one happens. And listen to me, Paul would go on to say this. He would say, listen, if it were not for the resurrection, in other words, if Christ were not raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. If Christ was not resurrected from the grave, then we are all still in our sins. And so when we talk about resurrection, when Jesus talks about resurrection, what he's saying is this, this element, this event right here, that is what we put our hope in. And beyond that resurrection, there is no hope. So out of all of the I am statements that Jesus makes, this is perhaps the most controversial because what Jesus is saying, he's saying, 
he's saying, I am the resurrection, and the resurrection is the only hope of there being any type of life following death. But through the power of the Spirit, by the will of the Father, he will resurrect me. And in turn, he will resurrect you. The resurrection is incredibly central to our faith. In the, in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, there is not one time, not one time in the book of Acts, in the whole, in the whole narrative of the, of the early church, there's not one time where the gospel is presented and it leaves out the resurrection. Not one time. And the reason, again, is because they understood without this, there's no that. And without this, there's no that. And without this, there's no that. But because of Christ, and because of his obedience to the Father, and because of his love for us, he is the resurrection, and he's not just the resurrection. But he says this, not only am I the resurrection, but I am the resurrection that gives you eternal life. I'm not just raising people from the dead for this bios type, this biological type of life. I am raising people to life for the zoe life, for the eternal life where there is no harm and there's no tears and there's no death and we live in peace and harmony with our creator and each other, Lord willing, forevermore. And so tonight, as we, uh, as we wrap this up, um, I know that most in this house have put their faith in Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. But just on the off chance that you haven't, or maybe you're watching online and the off chance you haven't, I just want to remind you what, what Scripture says. For those who would believe, he would enable to become the sons and the daughters of God. For those that confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, to them he offers eternal life. And so I want to pray for you and I just want to let you know, Pastor Justin, myself, Pastor Glenn, we're here if, if you would like prayer, if you need to reestablish that relationship with the Lord or, or start fresh new, that is, that is our hope. And our hope rests in not a resurrection, but Jesus as the resurrection. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much tonight. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. We're reminded that no man, no person comes to the Father except through you. And we have anchored our hope and our belief in that resurrection. Father, I want to pray for um, any tonight who may be listening and have not put their faith in Christ. I want to pray that through the drawing and the work of the Father, the Spirit, that you will draw them into a place of understanding the brokenness of humanity and our deep need for a Savior. And not just that, Lord, but the willingness. You did what you didn't have to do and go into a cross to die for us. But that resurrection power will save us. And so we're so thankful for that tonight. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight and the blessing of the Lord over them this week that we will be reminded that we have eternal life that lives inside of us because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we bless you, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen.